A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Daisy is Insatiable. I'm Daisy Buchanan. I'm the author of Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls. And together we're going to be exploring love, lust, life, appetite, identity and everything that makes sex thrilling, fascinating and bewildering. My guest is the author Paul Mendes. Paul released his debut novel Rainbow Milk to huge critical acclaim. The often autobiographical novel tells the story of Jesse, who runs away from his abusive mother and his strict Jehovah's Witness community to find himself in London. Jesse's experiences mirror Paul's own. He tries sex work, he finds love and lust in unexpected places, and ultimately discovers an identity he loves in writing. Paul writes about blackness, queerness, creativity, and connection, and that's what we talked about. This is an explicit conversation that features adult themes and adult language. You're currently writing the the screenplay of Rainbow Milk. I'd love to know about the gap between describing sex on a page for a reader to imagine and the differences and the different challenges you've encountered when doing that in a way that's going to be shown on screen? I've not yet started the screenplay, actually. I'm still at the stage working with the producers in terms of delineating the storylines. I think the production company uh, are very keen to stay as faithful to the sexual nature of the book as possible. You know, we want to sort of challenge and we want to sort of break down boundaries. I was watching a friend of mine, Ajamu, presented a show on Channel 4 last summer called Me and My Penis. I don't know if you've seen it. I've not um, seen Me and My Penis, but I'll put it on my watching list. You know what? It, it's absolutely great for many reasons. One being it gets men talking about sex, gets men talking about their bodies, gets men talking about their insecurities, etc., etc. But it's like incredibly sexually explicit, but it sort of normalizes it. You know, it makes it okay to sort of look at an erect penis and to sort of, you know, to understand that we all came from sex. We all sort of have sex, you know. And I think that's kind of what I want to sort of adopt with the visual version of Rainbow Rock. In the novel, I was very clear from the beginning that I wanted to write sex as it is. 
you know, for me, sex is already a language. It doesn't need all kinds of sort of, you know, florid descriptions to kind of, to bury it. No trains going into tunnels. <laughs> exactly, you know. I mean, unless it's really funny. Like, I don't know, I heard, I can't remember which book it's from, but there's a line, um, she was all over him like a frog on a branch. And that's like really funny. That's great. But, um, you know, Jess is a sex worker. He's 19 years old. He is previously a virgin and he sort of comes to London and totally immerses himself face first in sex. And I wanted him to be, I wanted the camera to be on his shoulder the whole time and for us as an audience to be experiencing it in real time with him in the way that he would, in his language, which is very literal because he doesn't have any other points of reference for it. What's so interesting in the book, and what I can't wait to see when it is on screen, is all of the ambiguities in sex. It's something I've tried really hard to capture in Insatiable, all of those gaps between lust and vulnerability. That, And I think what I love is that Jesse is a sex worker, and he has moments, you know, when he is in danger, and you fear for him, and you're not sure. But equally, I felt like, he was experiencing you know lust and desire in the job that that as well as needing to to make money to survive that curiosity was really motivating him and I think as you say sex is everything it's where we come from for I think most people it's part of reality whether it's something you do or or think about or anything in between and it can be it can be mundane it can be hot it can be thrilling it can be terrifying and all of that sex can be happening to the same person. Exactly. And lust and bravado, I think, can often overcome any sort of doubt, you know, just the thrill of that new new body, that new person. You know, whether he finds him ideally attractive or not, this client, Jesse has to sort of get hard and come for him and be sort of turned on enough to inspire the same from the client. So... It really sort of, I guess, programs him to have a certain attitude about sex and to his body from the very beginning, actually. And uh, I think he just enjoys it and finds it extremely empowering and something that can help him to sort of de-indoctrinate himself from the very, very strict and very moralistic religious surroundings that he has come from. As a reader, I really got the sense that for Jesse, a big part of it was that he hadn't been seen by anyone he'd been keeping his secret and he hadn't had any space to to be himself no one was going to encourage that and no one was allowed to do that and then there was something really thrilling and arousing about the fact that he was allowed to be himself and you know his being desired was enough to ignite desire yeah exactly um there's something about sort of being away from home being in a different city not knowing anybody nobody knowing you and not being overlooked it's his own space that he's created for himself to be himself. Like if he'd stayed in the West Midlands, like even in Birmingham, which is a big enough city to lose yourself in up to a point, it wouldn't have happened. The same thing wouldn't have happened. So, you know, London becomes this playground for him. You know, if he'd stayed in the West Midlands, he probably would have, um, you know, repented from his sins and being reinstated as a Jehovah's Witness and had to start again from scratch. Would that have carried through to his sort of proper adulthood. You know, he'd be expected to marry a woman and have children. And I suppose the time uh, as well, 9-11 was a big sort of impactful event for him. And Jesse watches 
the sort of news unfold of the September 11th attacks with a gay couple. And it's the first time he's ever been in the presence of a gay couple. He's in their home. And, you know, while all of this sort of completely shocking and sort of unprecedented stuff's happening on TV, that's completely conflated with this sense of, wow, like, look at these two men living together, like, like in this house and you know, they've got a bedroom upstairs that they share and you know they're just sort of you know one's topless one's bottomless and you know they're just sort of playing games together and whatever. I was really curious about a sort of elsewhere in art or literature whether that's sort of film or tv or or books um, anyone who you think has done a really great job of kind of describing desire. I'm very biased but I always loved Alan Hollinghurst's writing about sex. I reread the Swimming Pool Library while I was writing Rainbow Milk, and just the open desire Will has for Phil, for example, when he picks him up and takes him home and sort of follows him up a staircase and watches his ass in front of him as he walks up the stairs. Like I found that so erotic, and I really wanted to do something similar with Jesse. And you know the way Alan writes about sex as well; he's quite literal about it as well. Like he doesn't sort of. Um, you know, he's a wonderful writer and he doesn't have to sort of go outside of his usual register in order to write about sex. It's it's all of a piece with everything else that he does. And so I really sort of adopted that. James Baldwin as well is incredible um, when it comes to sex and everything else. Marlon James. I reread A Brief History of Seven Killings, sorry, recently. I think when that book first first came out and won the Booker Prize and everything, and everyone was like, well, you need to read this book as a queer black man, you need to read this book. Because all the reviews focused so much on how violent it was, you're kind of reading it thinking, oh, you know, when's the next, like, really sort of violent moment? But after a few years, once you've read the book and, you know, the hype's sort of died down, you can read it with fresh eyes. And the sex scenes in it really struck me far more than they did in the originally and just made me realize just wow like he writes sex amazingly and really erotically you know sex should always be described in relation to desire and to one's own sort of life pattern and i feel like sex is the thing that we kind of do everything for <laughs> it sort of directs our path in all kinds of ways because we want to sort of you know we want more money or we want to live in a better house or we want to sort of I don't know, do something differently creatively or et cetera, et cetera. Sex is a real catalyst for everything. And I think in the best sex writing, that's quite obvious. I know, you know, you've talked before about taking parts from sort of, you know, autobiography and, and the life you've lived and things you've been through. And I was wondering whether the the intimacy of writing about tender, loving, happy sex, that's something that feels much more private to you. It probably does. In terms of the autobiographical nature of Rainbow Milk, I was a sex worker as well for a long time, like over 10 years. You know, I enjoyed the sex with my clients, but obviously I didn't fall in love with any of them. And, you know, I can write about my experience as a sex worker because I find it interesting in terms of what it was in itself, but certainly in response to me previously having grown up as a Jehovah's Witness and sort of left that organization behind you know the tension between that is what i find interesting not necessarily writing about sex just for love itself we've we're surrounded by that and perhaps in another book though i will sort of focus more on conventionally romantic side of of love but i yeah i'm just chicken down um <laughs> but is shocking for people i think you know it may just be that they're not used to seeing that they're not used to reading um explicit sex certainly not that objectifies white men for example um, that is, you know, seen from the point of view of uh, a young black teenager 
Um, it's usually the other way around if it is at all. So, you know, there's a sense that as well that gay relationships in the mainstream consciousness are kind of acceptable if, you know, you're sort of legitimate and you're heteronormative and, you know, you're hoping to get married and, you know, settle down and all of those kinds of things. The side that, I mean, sex work for both genders and, you know, across the spectrum is, is still a taboo subject in, in many quarters. So, you know, when you sort of, when you're standing at that intersection, then that can sometimes be what causes the shock. But that's why books like Rainbow Milk and, and your book and The Prophets need to exist. We sort of cover sort of so many different sort of basis, bases of, of human sexuality and interaction. Um, and, you know, just to get people more used to the fact that, you know, there are people from different, of different identities and genders, all of whom love sex and, you know, want to have great sex and, you know, and be happy sexually. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You know, there's sex on screen. When people read a sex scene, that seems somehow a lot more challenging for people. And I don't know why that is. I'm wondering whether it's that sort of the intimacy of it, that when it's on a screen, you can pretend not to be interested and you can pretend to look the other way. It's like, oh, it's a bit awkward, isn't it? But you are forced to engage with it when you're reading it. Well, I think a lot of sex in books is quite embarrassing, for one. <laughs> I mean, the Bad Sex Award does exist for a good reason, and some of the stuff that gets written um, is is quite bad. So, But you would think it would be the other way around. You'd think that people in the privacy of a book, where nobody can look over their shoulder, that you know they'd be far more comfortable reading about explicit sex. And, you know, TV still can't go that far it can't really sort of go or it hasn't so far gone where books can when it comes to sex so it's always going to be sort of calculated for a sort of majority audience say uh on tv but that was what made i may destroy you so amazing or one of the things anyway um the scene where kwame 
uh, goes to this hookups flat with another guy, and they're like having sex on the bed, and it's like two very naked black men having mm. actual like positional sex. And I saw the BBC logo in the corner, and I was just like, wow, like <laughs> we've come a long way. The Queen's own bees, and like, look, this is amazing. Um, I'd literally never seen anything like that before, and I just found that so electrifying. We do have to have more of a conversation about what sex means to us, what sex work in particular means, because we still live in an environment where it's sort of denied, where it's um, seen to be illicit, and that's the sort of thing that makes trafficking possible. That's what, that's what enables uh, trafficking. That's what enables the abuse of sex workers to happen, especially to women. We just need to be a bit more grown up about it and realise, you know, it's there. It's not just a cliche to say that it's the oldest profession in the world. You know, people need sex. People are there to provide for sex, you know, out of their own sense of empowerment. Um, and we ought to celebrate that. And we ought to sort of be completely sort of non-judgmental to that. Sadly, though, I still, I still think we in this country at least are quite far away from that. I was thinking about um, what you said about I May Destroy You and what happens, you know, with Kwame, that there's that encounter and it is consensual initially, albeit with some sort of discussion about where the boundaries are and aren't. And I think that whole series did so much in general for the conversation around sexual violence and, you know, really shattering this idea that sort of we will only recognise sexual violence if someone jumps out of the bush and attacks you. And it's so much more nuanced than that. And I was so moved and haunted by the way that Arabella had channels. You know, she went and she did her art therapy. She sort of, you know, went to group therapy. She told everyone and told everyone. And Kwame was just silenced everywhere he turned. Yeah, I, I did find that really interesting um, and I really want to have the time to watch it again. It was very striking to me when Kwame goes to report what has happened. Not only does he lack conviction in what he's saying, but the police officer who you know, presumably is trained in some way um, to deal with things like this, otherwise he wouldn't have been sent to take this statement, is completely sort of incredulous. And it's a black male police officer who Kwame is reporting to. So that for me is... Uh, a depiction of black men unable to have a conversation with each other. I don't know how many layers that sort of exists on, whether it's a conversation about queer sex, a conversation about being the passive partner in queer sex, a conversation about consent, a conversation about sexual assault. You know, those are just four levels on which that sort of interaction between Kwame, who's experienced that, and and someone in a position to be able to help him, someone in police force. That's a, you know a breakdown in communication between them, um, and it was really quite upsetting to watch actually. And you know I wanted to think it was quite unbelievable. I kind of thought, well, you know, wouldn't the police be more trained, like well trained than that, and to be and be much uh, more impartial about it, um, and just listen to what Kwame is saying. I think people who are involved in sexual assault sometimes think that they're not going to be believed. And so, you know, partly they don't believe themselves, even when they're saying it. And that sort of lack of, lack of conviction can sort of translate to the person you're reporting to. And they wouldn't necessarily take it seriously then. So, you know, Jesse goes through something quite similar, but an assault takes place. Jesse gets injured, um, goes to the clinic, tells them what's happened. And they ask him, do you want to press charges? This is quite serious. You know, what this man's done, he could be doing it to other people. And Jesse just wants no part of it at all. 
It's just an instinct that he has that he just wants to sort of get out of there, recover, and not be involved in anything else. You know, the world's changed a lot since then, um, and but it still has a long way to go. Um, and hopefully now we'll be able to see more examples of people being able to sort of come forward, especially after Me Too, to, to be able to say, look, this is my experience, this is what's happened to me. Um, I'm not lying. Well, they shouldn't even have to say I'm not lying or I'm not making it up. You know, we should, we, we need to listen to people who've been assaulted. We need to listen to people who have not given their consent and we need to, to work with them. I think that for any, any person who's been assaulted in any way, you know, and I am in that category, to acknowledge that a crime, you are the victim of a crime and that an awful, awful thing has happened to you and to seek justice and retribution and to try and even though even when you know you perhaps you should do it because of all the other people who are vulnerable if you don't there's just something so daunting about really acknowledging that the bad thing has happened to you that it is not the right thing but the easier thing to say I'll never go to that place again I'll never wear that again I'll just I think that Sexual crime and sexual violence is maybe unlike anything else where I can't think of, and there must be something, but I really can't think of anything where you would blame yourself and think, well, maybe this is somehow my fault. I think you're absolutely right. I can't think of anything either. Yeah, I've been through you know, sexual assault as well. You know, I've been told you know, you haven't been raped. Men can't be raped. It's, it's not possible. And when you're young and you're listening to all the people say things like this, you kind of believe them and you kind of, you do blame yourself for what's happened or you blame yourself for how you feel about it anyway. And that causes problems. It causes like long-term psychological problems that shouldn't necessarily be there. And I'm really glad that we're in a different place now where we're starting to have different conversations where the discourse has changed completely around consent and assault and you know and i'm really sad that sometimes people in sort of positions of authority certainly in terms of age um are still perhaps sort of stuck in in a different kind of mentality um because they do have an influence on people who are younger than them i'm so sorry that happened to you and i'm so sorry that that was denied to you that i think it's really hard when you've made yourself vulnerable and asked for the, just the room to feel that and own that and know that and when that is denied and my assumption is always that if someone is you know more often than not that's denied or played down because someone's maybe often carrying their own experience or the experience of someone close to them it doesn't change anything or erase anything but I think that this book Rainbow Milk is something so deeply touching and affecting and it's going to make a lot of people you know feel seen i hope so um yeah i definitely wanted to write the book to show someone who puts themselves in this position and not just put the, puts themselves but you know the world sort of funnels them into this particular place but it doesn't have to be permanent they don't have to die you know so many of the uh, stories um about sex workers in fiction in tv film end badly for that person um, often in sort of addiction and death. It doesn't have to be that way. You know, sex work doesn't necessarily create death, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, 
So yeah, I really kind of wanted to show like a success story and for someone to sort of have survived and, you know, despite sexual assault and all of those things. On that point, I do think that in speaking about the, the male sex, sexual assault uh, experience, perhaps generally, you know, masculinity is such a cage and men are supposed to, to not complain about things, to not sort of be abused. And so I can see the guy who said that to me's point about, you know, it's impossible for men to be raped in terms of his mentality and the way he was brought up. Um, but that's obviously wrong. It's obviously bullshit. And I just think, you know, we're having a really sort of interesting conversation at the moment generally in the world about masculinity. The discourse is actually really open. Men have started to talk a lot more about their experiences and their feelings. And so let's hope that that continues and that we see you know, an erosion of this sort of toxic environment that mass masculinity is defined, has been defined by. Being a Jehovah's Witness is much more sort of all-encompassing. Um, but, you know, Jesse has been living in this world where, like, the rules are just so... There are so many rules, but there's so much order. And I completely understand why a person would go from living in a world where sort of all of their, their free time and their thoughts and everything was kind of regimented and spoken for and why they'd want to hurl themselves into fun and chaos and their own choices but equally I think that's for it to go from all of the rules to none of the rules I grew up in a very very strict Catholic family and I think that my fascination with sex and how we express ourselves through sex very much came from the fact that it was completely completely you know forbidden and not something I was allowed to know about or think about in the context of pleasure I don't know I think it's very it's very difficult to um speak for anyone other than myself really grew up as a Jehovah's Witness obviously and then a few years later moved to London to study acting and became a sex worker I think the whole time I was juggling with having lost my sort of spiritual family and but still sort of having this kind of sense that they must be right about the idea that the world's going to end one day and we're going to have Armageddon and only Jehovah's Witnesses will survive and inherit the paradise earth, etc, etc. I had to balance that with me having my own sort of ambition for what I wanted to be in this world. So, you know, I always wanted to be a writer, I always wanted to write, but, um, you know, decided to study acting. And that was the reason why I became a sex worker, to be able to pay my fees and pay my way uh knowing i was 22 at the time um that you know i was sexually attractive to older men particularly and i was attracted to them as well so it just sort of seemed like you know an easy way and i felt mature enough to be able to deal with it in my own way and even on a sort of you know sort of philosophical level i suppose i kind of felt like this was one of the only ways that i could um, put, my, put myself out of the sort of the moralistic existence that I and the moralistic mentality that I've been raised with because you know homosexuality is completely anathema to witnesses but it's not um, against the law uh, as far as the state's concerned or at least not anymore so I kind of sort of threw myself right in and it's almost like you know when your parents when you're a kid and your parents aren't there and you kind of think oh I can swear and so you're sort of like, you know, in front of the mirror or whatever, going F, 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 C, 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 W, W, W. Um, I don't know whether I'm allowed to swear on your podcast, but... Um... I'm sure. Yeah. Given the nature of the subject matter, okay, great. I think some okay. fine. <laughs> That's very true. Okay, fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> um, <laughs> you kind of feel like you're just, you know, you're able to do that. So like, why not? Even um, now I'm well into my 30s, it still gives me a giddy old thrill. <laughs> yeah. 
I love it. I might do some fucking after this. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> but yeah, you know, you just kind of want to express your freedom. And, you know, like I said earlier, you're in London, away from your family who are all sort of, you know, my grandparents moved to the Midlands in the 50s and nobody's ever left. You know, they're all still in the West Midlands. So, you know, I was the first person to leave. I knew that I wasn't in danger of seeing anyone I knew. So it was a case of, okay, I can just be me. I can sort of find find out what me is. Let's do the most sort of radical and extreme thing I can think of. And hopefully one day with this upbringing that I had, plus this, I'll be able to find the middle path and be myself one day. And I, I feel like that's happened for me. Um, You know, it could have gone very, very wrong. I put myself in a lot of danger. You know, I became sort of like semi-addicted to cocaine at one point for example. And I can just imagine there have been times where I've been like walking down the street in London carrying a wrap of coke with me and a police car's driven past. And as a black man, I'm like, well, you know, what sort of danger did I put myself in and for what reason? So, you know, there's a whole intersection of difficulties that, that are sort of, I suppose, specific to my black queer experience um, that I've overcome. And, you know, I wouldn't advise anyone to, to follow that, <laughs> do that. Um, but it's been really interesting, the feedback I've received from ex-Jehovah's Witnesses uh, since Rainbow Milk came out. So many have written to it, and so many who now work in the creative industries and, you know, are doing incredibly well and um, expressing themselves uh, creatively. I just think it is such a strict environment, such a single mentality kind of environment, that once you're out of that, it really, the world is your oyster. To, to create anything... I think you need that a discipline of sorts. You need to be able to sort of to sit down and go through something hard and uncomfortable. And, um, you know, maybe that's the new set of rules that a person finds and that they're able to kind of to use that something very regimented for, for good in their lives, that, you know, some of the habits stick even when the, the old meanings and rules are falling away. I think in any sort of form of creativity, there's a tension between um, needing to sort of follow a set of rules and also be sort of uh, screaming at something, like, in the most anarchic way possible. Like, there's always a balance between those two mentalities, I think. So perhaps, you know, because the whole Jehovah's Witness doctrine is just so kind of simple, but also completely all-encompassing, once you leave that behind, it sort of completely takes your entire centre of gravity with it. Um, so you have to rebuild that. And, you know, that's kind of quite a holistic experience and, and one that, can sort of produce a lot of fruit because you're interested both in the self and what's deep inside, but also the metaphysics of everything and everything in between. You know, you are sort of thinking about, you know, things that are far greater than yourself at the same time as trying to sort of rebuild yourself. Um, and I think those are great conditions from which to, to produce any art. Really. Well, I've so, so enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for being so wise and so candid. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. I was so moved by Paul's wisdom and openness and the way he was willing to consider the breadth of emotion within human sexuality, the tricky intertwining of power and desire, and how we can and should talk about experiencing tenderness and violence at the same time. Rainbow Milk is published by Dialogue Books and now available in paperback. It's a book that will stay with me forever. Raw, beautiful, often challenging, but always moving. Thanks so much for listening to Daisy is Insatiable. The podcast is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast with special thanks to Sphere. 
My novel, Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls, is published by Sphere and out now. It's available in hardback from all online bookshops, as well as Amazon, where you can also find the ebook and the audio book read by Charlie Clive for Audible. I leave you with this from Chuck Polinick. Few things in life seem more sexy than a banned book. Join me next time for more source, sex and secrets on Daisy is Insatiable. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.